Welcome to the CrossFit Engage podcast. Our goal is to share with you the success stories of our community and how they're living longer, healthier, and happier lives. Here we go. Jeff Fincher, a.k.a. CrossFit Engage's most interesting man. <laughs> how is that? Do you feel like that's pretty uh, accurate? I mean, I'll take it. I, yeah, I definitely yeah, think uh, you've got a lot to say, and I'm hopeful <laughs> that in this podcast that I'm probably going to learn a lot more than I'm actually going to say, so our, our listeners will actually probably be pretty excited that I'm not talking as much. But uh, we want to know more about the man, the myth, the legend, so tell us a little bit about Jeff Fincher, what it is that you do. And let's start with this. What what class do you frequent here at CrossFit Engage? Um. You mean like what time slot? Yeah, what time slot? Right now, the 4 o'clock. The 4 o'clock? Okay, so for those that don't attend the 4 o'clock, and then for anybody else that's listening, Jeff Fincher, and tell us us what you do for a living. Well, um, I have several jobs. All of it. Yeah. (laughs) All right, so uh, I'm a part-time skydiving instructor. Uncommon, but I love it. Yeah, and I have a... uh, a falconry-based bird abatement company. Also so, uncommon. Probably. And we're we're going to have to unpack that one a yeah, little bit, yeah, too. Yeah, probably. I don't know if anyone understood any of those words I just said. <laughs> so, basically, it is a nuisance bird control business where we use trained hawks and falcons to get rid of the birds. So, those aren't our only tools, but that's kind of how we, how we sold the company, you know, kind of how we... uh our niche. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. And what are some of the hobbies? And, and then I kind of want to break down each one of these so that way we can kind of get to know a little bit about how you got into some of these very uncommon yet what I would consider <laughs> really cool jobs. <laughs> what are some hobbies of yours? Uh, well, currently um, I'm doing a lot of dirt bike riding. So okay. for whatever reason, in my 40s, I decided to get back into riding dirt bikes. Hey, this is a good so, idea. Yeah, why not? It's an extremely physically demanding sport. Like, why not? Love it. So, Love yeah. it. Okay, cool. So, Jeff, when you initially – I want to, I, I kind of want to intro with the dirt bike riding because mm-hmm. when you initially started here, you came to me and your biggest concern was at the time you were indo racing. Right. So tell the people a little bit about, well, and I guess we'll start with this. So your concern with the indo racing was that your endurance wasn't up to par with some of your competitors. And you had done pretty well, and you were competitive in the indo world, but you felt like there was a missing component to your grip strength and your um, just overall endurance for the indo racing. So tell the people a little bit more about what indo racing is specifically, mm-hmm. what your event was or is and then your struggle with that and kind of your approach towards utilizing crossfit to help you bridge that gap to becoming a little bit more successful in the indo world yeah so um so when i started back riding the dirt bikes i knew i was lacking some some basic riding skills that i want to work on so i got into riding trials bikes first um from the trials community i met uh, friends that were racing something called hard enduro. So basically it's enduro racing 
um, over the hardest obstacles you can you can imagine. So <laughs> give us some examples of these hard obstacles. It's just like giant boulders, you know, big rock ledges, uh, just giant logs, uh, crazy hill climbs, so stuff like that. So basically, a combo of the the trial bike series with enduro. That's exactly right. Right. Yep. So lot. tell. Tell the people what what defines it as enduro. What dis, What's the distance? What's the time frame? What are they looking for when they're looking at enduro racing? So in uh, enduro racing, basically it's a checkpoint system. So you have checkpoints set up along the course. Sometimes the courses are as short as four miles. Sometimes they're 10 miles. And you basically just make that your way around that course as many times as you can. But there's usually two to four checkpoints in the course. So it's whoever scores the most checkpoints in the fastest amount of time. Okay. Now the races have last year, they were a three hour time limit. Okay. And this year they upped it to four hours. And that's when I knew I was in serious trouble. <laughs> if the three was hard. <laughs> yeah. Cause the three was bad enough. So I knew I had to do something about my conditioning. So that's what led me to you guys. Okay. Now, with that being said, is being the combo of not only are you racing for checkpoints as fast as you possibly can for the span of about three to four hours, you're also going over these really hard obstacles. Is there a difference in the bike that is involved with that versus a normal trial bike versus a normal enduro bike? Is there a, a mix or, or a combo of the two? Yeah, so that's the, the trick of it. It's It's a full-size dirt bike. I mean, just a normal enduro dirt bike. Um, now, obviously, we have a lot more, like, guards and protection on the bike because we drop it a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a little heavier, actually. You probably bottom out on some stuff, too, like going <laughs> oh, over yeah. those logs. And, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I bash that skid plate a lot. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of that stuff is, um, you know, you end up pushing the bike over it or having to pick the bike up and – drag it over stuff you know just because as you ride and you get tired your skill level goes down i mean the technique goes away and it's just a you know attrition at that point i can i can almost imagine this to be something and maybe because we got a big cyclist community here something that they might even be able to relate to is the cyclocross but with an engine and pretty heavy right (laughs) and and you can pick that thing up and manhandle it going over all these big logs and stuff like that right yeah about 200 50 pound bike yeah Yeah. so tell me about your training here when and how did you notice that that was starting to become impactful in your enduro racing world yeah so uh i started here after um my first season of racing had ended um so i came here i knew i had several months to get kind of start getting in better shape for the next season and i guess after i don't know after a couple months in here i went and rode with some buddies and uh i just i rode all day with them and i didn't even really notice it at the time but they all commented you know Mm -hmm. like man you never really got that tired and you know you hung in there all day and i was like oh yeah you know dang you're right yeah yeah, and I actually feel pretty good, you know. The recovery was good. A lot faster. Yeah, yeah, and the next day I wasn't just dead, you know. Right. So, like, yeah, so that's when I started noticing it, and that was a, a good a good motivator for me to keep going. 
Right. And, uh, and yeah, and then the first race of the season came along, and um, I got placed on the podium, which I had not ever done. And uh, race? yeah, yeah. Now was I'm, it? I mean, you got third place. Third, pl- third place in okay. that one. Um, and in the last race, I got second place. Oh, so, congratulations. Yeah, yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. So I knew you had gotten on the podium for the first one, but that second place, man, you're moving up. Yeah. Keep yeah. this up. You're going to be at the top before too long. That's the goal. So so tell me a little bit about what's the season look like for Enduro? How many races? What's the what's the series? Do you have to travel any? Is it pretty much local? What's what's the season kind of look like for Enduro? Yeah, it's, it's in the southeast. Um, so, and they split the season. So there's – we did three races in the uh, the spring, basically, and then they give us the hottest months off because okay. it, it, you know, it would just kill people, right? To to do a four hour hard oh, enduro yeah. and <laughs> the heat August. of the engine, and, yeah, the yeah. heat outside, the temps, the humidity, yeah, pretty brutal. Yeah, it would be bad. So the see the season of a series will pick back up in the fall, and we'll run uh, three or four more races in the fall. Okay, so does it? It's pretty much a just a pause button for the temperature, right? For the for the summer, the hottest months. Yep. And then you pick back up, and the point standing stays the same. Yeah, that's okay. right. Okay. Yep. So where where are we sitting right now? Um, second in points right now. Okay. And there's three more races. Yeah, there's three more races. Okay. Yep. So what happens if you win the southeast? Uh, well, if I win the series, I mean, nothing particularly happens. <laughs> <laughs> I just win for, and then they then I have to move up a class next year, so oh, okay. <laughs> I'll have to ride a harder class. Right. So what class are you riding right now? Uh, right now I'm riding what's called Iron Class, and uh, that is that is the uh the most beginner class basically. Okay. Yeah. So there's four classes, but uh, in hard enduro we all run the same course. Mm-hmm. So it, the classes are only separated by basically, you know, um, like time experience or, okay. wise and, and whatnot. Right. Okay. Exactly. Cool. So as I'm struggling, you know, trying to get my bike through <laughs> the rocks, like some pro rider comes through and just like laps me. It you know? just laps yeah, it makes at it look you. easy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. That's, that's funny. Well, not, not, uh, after the season though, it doesn't sound like, especially with the trajectory, of the podium finishes, it That's looks right. like you're uh, you're in a pretty good spot to go ahead and and you know win this thing. Yeah. So yeah. knock on wood. I don't want right. to. I don't want to jinx anything, <laughs> but um, that's awesome. So now talk to me a little bit about. Um, let's let's switch gears a little bit to not hobby but real job skydiving. Right. How did you get into that? Oh, what man. prompted you to decide? Because I know for me. And I just want to put this out there, and, and by the end of this podcast, I promise you will not have talked me into to skydiving, but uh, terrified of heights, absolutely terrified of heights. And a buddy of mine, when he was 18 years old, on his 18th birthday, got two tickets. Likely, you might have been an instructor there at the time. Yeah, I don't know. Have. I don't know. <laughs> um, but he got two tickets to go to Waverly to, to skydive, and he was like, hey, dude, got two tickets for my birthday. And I was like – you know, good luck finding somebody else. I'll, I'll cheer you guys on from the ground, but there's no way I'm jumping out of a perfectly good airplane, you know, so not going to happen for me, but tell, tell me about why you thought that was a good idea. And then even to do it for a living. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, it's funny because I was definitely in Waverly when he okay. went there because I've worked there since they opened. Okay. So so, <laughs> so you, I was probably involved in You that. were probably one that I shied away from. <laughs> yeah, probably and so. still am. <laughs> well, I got started. Um, I know it's kind of something like a lot of people, like I always just want to try it. Um, and then I was dating this girl, and she wanted to go skydiving for her birthday. So I was like, well, this is perfect because I've always wanted to do this too. Mm-hmm. And – uh. So anyway, I set it up. We went skydiving. Um, uh, I got rid of the girlfriend and kept skydiving. Okay. After that, okay. Well, uh, got rid so. of her. I'm assuming not during the skydiving. Not during the skydiving. Okay, right. Good. Right. Good. But yeah, the relationship didn't last, but the relationship with skydiving did. There you go. So, there you go. You found something so, you love now. Exactly. That's good. And that was, uh, gosh, like 18 years ago. Yeah, you were definitely there when he got his tickets. <laughs> yeah. Um, so tell the people how many jumps it takes, like how you became an instructor there. What was your trajectory towards actually making that a job and a career? Yeah, so I've always been drawn to um, things that were kind of technical, and I, I really loved the gear when I showed up at the drop zone. It was like a an atmosphere. Uh, the social atmosphere was cool. I saw this cool gear, and – um, you know, people packing parachutes and all this new terminology and language that, mm. I, I, you know, I was hearing. And I uh, was instantly kind of drawn to it. And uh, I think the, the community aspect of it was one of the strongest parts. You know, everybody had a, a pretty tight bond. And uh, anyway, so I started taking the taking the lessons. And then kind of the first job that you do in Scottsdale, as strange as it sounds, is packing parachutes. Which, right. yeah, which probably I'm, the most important right, part. Right, which is like one of the yeah. most important parts, right? But it's actually like not a, a very complicated process. Um, so I started packing parachutes to, to basically pay for my jumps uh, as I was trying to get enough jumps to become an instructor. So, so were you, you were packing your own chute or were you packing your instructor's chute? Well, I was pa- yeah, I was packing other people's parachutes. Whew, right. I'd have a hard right. time yeah. trusting that, man. <laughs> I mean, not because well, of you specifically, but, right. you know, I'm jumping out of a plane. I need to make sure that thing is, is ready to go. I don't know, man. Packing them sucks. So, it kind of worth the risk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, it's like, yeah, I'll just let somebody else do it. Yeah. It's probably, it. probably not something you want anybody cutting corners on, though, either. Right. And they're, all, and they're packing them all out there in the open. I mean, you can see what's going on. And you kind of get, like, a certain packers you trust. You know? right, right. Yeah, yeah. I would hate to find out how you would know there's one that you don't trust, though. <laughs> well, you word know? spreads pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> so, I guess yeah. so. Yeah. I guess so. Yeah. So you find out pretty quick. But, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I did that for a while. And to be a, to be a tandem instructor, so there's different level of certifications and ratings. Um, so to be a tandem instructor, and that's where you – hook someone to you and take them on their first skydive. Mm-hmm. That is a, a minimum of three years in the sport and 500 jumps. Wow. So I knew I had three years before I could, you know, really work in the sport other than packing parachutes. Right. Um. So, yeah. So I just uh, stuck with it and worked up to that and then uh, got some other instructional ratings as well. And, yeah, man, it's really just – fell in love with the the culture and 
you know, sport and aviation in general. I love aviation anyway. Right. So just being around it in that capacity was cool because, you know. You, do you, uh, have you ever dabbled in, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to veer too far off the path here, but do, have you ever dabbled in flying? Do you have I a have. pilot's license or anything? I don't have a pilot's license. Uh, I have I'm surprised by that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I started it, man. And it's one of the few things that I've started in life and just didn't finish. Uh. Um, but to be honest, I, I just, I don't know. After I had been skydiving for so long and riding in airplanes for so long and even just flying airplanes with buddies and whatnot, um, I just I just didn't find it that, I don't know, it didn't appeal to me that much, man. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean. I there wasn't I was, that much adrenaline, I guess, attached yeah, to it for you. Yeah, and it's just another thing to have to, like, another rating and license to have to keep up with and keep current. I mean, all these skydiving ones and, like, the bird ones and the federal permitting, I was just sick of taking tests and sick of having licenses right. to mess with. And uh, and since I was kind of, like, I was kind of cheating the system because I'm just around it and in airplanes all the time anyway. So I'm getting my aviation fixed that way. Mm -hmm. And if I really want to fly, like I can hop in the plane with one of four friends that are flight instructors and I can go fly. Right. If I want to. But the reality of me like owning my own airplane and, and flying places in it, I just didn't really see that being uh financially in reach at the time either okay and it's like man this is kind of like a, a waste of time for me to to right. do this and i guess so. if you have buddies that you can go up and fly with anyways like you said and and i know completely unrelated but any you know certifications that you get you know here in my in my world in my field as well it's just like it's another thing to keep up with it's yes. another thing that you have to try to research on or remember you know, not forget about researching on, and then, you know, you're out money for certain tests and CEUs and stuff like that. So those certifications are the same. Uh, I, I can imagine that in that aspect. So it just becomes kind of a, it's a lot to keep up with. It's a lot to add onto your plate. It is. It is. I just didn't see it being worth it for me. It's yeah. kind of like having, it's kind of like buying a boat too. Like why go buy a boat when your buddy's got one? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> Just riding his, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So now you're a tandem skydive instructor. Mm-hmm. You've been doing that for 18 years. How many, what's, what's the frequency of your jumps now? And how many people do you usually jump with? Is it weekly? Do you do a like, certain number of jumps per month? What's the what's the frequency there? Yeah, now that you're in it. So I've been pretty um, pretty active in it since I started. I took last year. I kind of took the season off, and I only probably did about ten jumps mm-hmm. all year. But uh, usually, I mean, I'm jumping every week right now. Usually okay. three days out of the week. Really? Wow. Um, and I'd say, you know, I'll do. I don't know twenty jumps a week or something like that right now yeah wow yeah that's a and, lot dude. and that's so, yeah and it's not really a lot compared to what i used to do so uh yeah that's kind of like taking it easy so are me. you what's the so you land with whoever's you know strapped to your tandem you repack you get back on the plane you take somebody else up or is it is there a gap yeah. in between or what's the what what does that look like when you're doing multiple jumps in a day? Yeah, I mean, if we're really busy, uh, basically what happens is they fuel the plane for uh, reloads of 
of divers. So we'll run three loads back to back. Basically, I'll land, I'll drop my parachute in the field sometimes if we're in a real rush and somebody else will carry it in. I'll run in, I'll get my next rig, put it on, get my next student who's already been briefed. Uh, so we do all that while we're shut down for fuel. Right. And get them and just go, the plane pulls in and get right back on the plane and go. So okay. do like three in a row like that. And wow. then when they shut down for fuel, I'll try to drink some water and get three students ready and yeah and whatnot. So that's how it goes when it's really busy. And the most I've done in a day is 21 jumps. Yeah, and in that a was day? a that was a busy day. I'll say so. Yeah, twenty one people willing yep. to risk it all in one day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wow. Uh, so what what's the what's the average height that they're jumping from when you go to Waverly? Yeah, if you, if you go to Waverly, you're looking at about ten thousand five hundred feet to maybe eleven thousand feet. Okay. Um, what's the what's the fall time there? Yeah, looking at about forty seconds, probably a free okay. fall. Okay. So if there's a, if you go to, so if you go to a drop zone that has a turbine aircraft, you usually go to fourteen thousand feet, and you can get about a solid minute of free fall. Got it. So yeah, it depends on the airplane that's flying. Okay. As far as the altitude. And what's the uh, what's the, I guess the the hard neck I would say, and when you're. Uh, when you're pulling the parachute, what's what's the height on that? Oh uh, man, that's a good question. So, um, so all the all the parachutes, all the modern parachutes, are equipped with uh, something called an AAD. It's an automatic activation device. Okay. All right. So basically, that's a little computer that is going to fire your reserve parachute in case you do nothing. Right. Um. So on a a sport rig, which is just a solo jumper's parachute system, that thing fires at 700 feet. So, which is, yeah, there's ba- in, <laughs> there's no time yeah. at all. No, um, it's, it's getting pretty close. Yeah, it's getting very close. <laughs> and sometimes, like, maybe it still doesn't, you know, depending on the body Slow position. Slow you down enough. Yeah, the body position you're in and whatnot, like, it, it may not open in time. Oh, uh but on a tandem system, it fires at sixteen hundred feet. Okay, so a little bit more. There's a for much there. more. Yeah, there's a, a bigger margin there. But now you have the option; you can manually pull it sooner. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what's yeah. your what's your general? You're like, okay, we're getting close enough. I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and pull the chute. Yeah, I I usually initiate the deployment between fifty five hundred and six thousand feet. Okay, and it'll take like about a thousand feet for it to completely open usually wow yeah wow so if it doesn't deploy till 700 <laughs> oh yeah well, you're i mean well, and that's, uh, that, that's, that's a solo a, though, that's right? a solo one. right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. But that's still... and that's the reserve too so the reserve parachute opens faster than your main parachute does right it's the way it's designed okay yeah any uh any close calls Oh man, I got a ton of close calls. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've got like almost ten thousand jumps. So yeah, there's a few what, close calls weaved in there. What's been the one where you're like, this might be it? Oh man, so I had a, I had one I actually show up at the drop zone. It's in the winter, and I don't jump much in the winter. And my buddy was there, and I had. I was recovering from some injury. I can't remember what injury I had, a broken ankle or something. I don't know. But I still had a boot, like this little like short boot on my foot. 
And I, I kind of want to pause you here a little bit because if people don't know Jeff, like you've always got something going on. And yeah. as we sit here in front of me, he's got staples in his knee. <laughs> That's, oh, yeah, I didn't tell you about that. Yeah, I, it's the first time I've seen it. He's got scratches all up and down his leg. So I'll, maybe we'll get into that. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, uh, there's always something going on. So boot on your leg. Yeah, yeah. So I just like a little short boot on my foot. And uh, my buddy was like, He's like, oh man. He's like, can you can you take this student? Like, I'm just, I want a break or whatever. And I was like, yeah, okay. And uh, so it's middle of winter and it's pretty cold and everybody's bundled up, wearing a lot of clothes. And I go up to jump. And on this jump, this was a like a training jump. This person was learning the skydive, so they were keeping up with their uh, altitude and they were going to pull the handle to release the parachute and mm-hmm. all that, right? Well, on these tandem systems, there's two handles. There's one for a student. And there's one for me. Right. So if he's not pulling, I can I just reach over and pull mine. Right. Well, we're in the jump and everything's going fine. And he pulls. I, I, I see he reaches. He pulls the handle, and nothing, nothing happens. <laughs> so, oh, <no. laughs> so I'm like, well, what's going on? Here? So I look over my shoulder, and uh, the parachute is packed into a like a, a deployment bag. So, when the container on your back opens, this bag comes out. All the lines come out and stretch, and that's and then it pulls the the parachute out of its little bag. Well, the parachute's behind us; and it's in the bag, but it's not coming out oh, of its bag. No. Uh, so, <laughs> anyway, oh, okay. Well, let me back it up. He pulled the parachute; it didn't feel anything happen. So right. then I pulled my handle. Just yeah. to make sure, because I was like, well, maybe his didn't work or something, so I'll pull mine. And then nothing happens. Then I look up and I see this bag. It's called a bag lock. Uh-huh. So this thing's like spinning around above us and whatnot. Well, so like, I. Hold on, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I did the procedures, right? Like I go yeah. and I, I, I cut away, which is which releases, supposed to release that one. Um, and then I go to pull the reserve. And when I go to grab the reserve handle, I also grabbed a handful of uh, my sweatshirt that was, like, tucked between me and the student. So I grabbed Um, the handle and my sweatshirt. So when I go to pull it, it only pulled, like, three or four inches. Oh, no. (laughs) And I'm like, well, what's – I was like, why can't I pull this handle? So, like, I look down and see that I've got my sweatshirt, you know. So so I turn loose of it and then have to, like, grab the handle again, pull the reserve. And uh, so the reserve comes out. And opens, and as soon as it opens, I feel like something hit my foot weird. And then, uh, so I look down, and the parachute that was in the bag that I released, when I opened the reserve, it fell past us and bounced off my foot, and the lines from it wrapped around my foot. Oh, no. That boot that I was wearing. Oh, no. So now I'm like, oh my god! Like I hope this thing doesn't come out of the bag because now if this parachute comes out and inflates, we're screwed. Oh man, it's, <laughs> and it's gonna like break my pelvis, man, because yeah. it's like you know it's gonna get so much drag on it. Right. So it's already like dragging behind us, and I see it start to like snake out of the bag, but the thing is spinning. The the bag is spinning so fast behind us. The parachute's kind of like wilding itself up right as it's it twisting, comes yeah, yeah it's twisting yeah. up as it comes out i'm like oh thank god like don't inflate don't inflate and uh i've got a hook knife with me but my leg is 
there's so much drag on it. My leg is being pulled like so far oh, behind no. me that I can't reach the lines, you know? Yeah. And uh, anyway, like eventually I, I just give up on that and focus on like a spot to land this reserve because right. we're not landing at the airport now because like we haven't had time to right. to fly back to the airport. And all this stuff that happened like took so much time and free fall that we were pretty low right. too. So what what was the what was the height when the reserve finally caught and you knew like okay we're not gonna die now but we gotta figure out somewhere to land. So uh, the reserve opened just above the AED activation altitude. So we were probably at like 2,000 feet when all when that finally opened. And then I fought with this other thing on my leg for probably five or 600 feet. And and what was the what was the student's reaction when all this was going on? Was he just panicking? <laughs> yeah. No, he... no, man. They don't know what's going on. They're just like – They just think it's a part of the procedure. Yeah, they're and just, just kind of oblivious with it. You know, and I'm not like screaming and freaking out or – you know, as long as you're staying kind of calm, they don't really think much of it. <laughs> but uh, I'd even handed him the knife at one point. I was like, hey, man, can you reach those lines that are wrapped around my foot? Yeah. That, <laughs> he couldn't reach them. That's like uh, we talk a lot about, like, in athletic training when I was in school there. Is like if you come up on something that's really bad, and, and it's obvious to everybody around, like somebody's limb has literally been chopped off, whatever, you're like, hey. Listen, it's cool. It's not that bad, <laughs> right, right? Like, right. like if you freak out, they're just gonna they're gonna panic, <laughs> yes. right? But yes. if you're like, hey, listen, no big deal, right? But we got ambulances on the way, right? Right. Uh, so I imagine <laughs> it's probably that same scenario. But I would have a very hard time because now my life is in danger too. So right. I don't know how you kept your your cool on well, that one, but I'll go ahead and tell you: if you're ever on a skydive and your instructor is very quiet. You should probably be worried. <laughs> That's probably a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. They're not like, hey, you having fun? Yeah, exactly. Like, if they're not talking to you, then, yeah. like, something's probably going on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so when, when you landed, probably, you know, swabbed the oh, brows man, off. Like, absolutely. <laughs> made, it, made it through that one. But did you ever tell the student or did they have any idea later? Or were you just like, yeah, walk it off? Yeah, no, cool? I told them. I told them. Uh, you know, I talked to them about it, what, what happened and everything. So... Yeah, that was uh, that was definitely a relief to get on the ground. Yeah, no kidding. Like, oh man, safely. Thank God, yeah. And walk out of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, was, I limped out of it because I was already had already <laughs> well, had a broken foot. That's true. Walk, walking relative, <laughs> but you were unassisted off yeah. of the off of the ground. So right. that's good. Uh, all right. So the next job I want to talk about real quick, and then we'll kind of wrap this thing up. Probably pretty close after that, but uh, falconry. Mm-hmm. Run us through all those words that nobody understood again in the beginning. Yeah. What do you What do you do with your falcon? I've actually had a chance to meet your falcon. That's that was right. Super cool. Yeah. Yeah. Brought one up here. Yeah. So tell us about that and and what you do with with your falcon. Yeah. So uh, started falconry in 1998. Um. So falconry is just hunting with a trained bird of prey. Uh, I don't know if anybody listening to this remembers the movie Beastmaster, but. That's that, what, that was probably definitely before my yeah, time, too, because that's, that's not ringing a bell. He, he had, like, a trained eagle. Okay. So, as a kid, I, like, always, uh, you know, thought that was fascinating. Right. And, uh, and so, as a teenager, and I saw a show of a hunting channel where they were hunting uh, rabbits with a trained red-tailed hawk. And I was just like, man, it's like, I didn't know you could actually hunt with them. Like, I'm going to do that. Right. So, that's what got me started. Um, grew up hunting and fishing anyway. So... 
so yeah, so I just did falconry, just hunting with uh, birds for you know a hobby for a long time. In 2008, uh, the federal government started issuing um, an abatement permit, which allowed you to use captive bred birds of prey commercially. Okay. Um, as a means of yeah, bird control. So this is this is something you just you found it when they put it out. You kind of stumbled upon it. You're like, hey, well, been doing this for a little while already. Yeah, it it, it was it was pretty. I didn't really stumble. It was it was pretty big news in the falconry community when they when they did this because up until then, some people had kind of done it uh, unpaid or done it, you know, whatever. Probably on the down low, honestly. Um, but yeah. So when they did the actual permits, issued the permits, um, you had to be a master class falconer to do it, which takes – you had to have eight years of experience in falconry to be – Nothing that you do has come easy, has it? <laughs> no. no. Wow. And, uh, yeah, we started it in 2010. Uh, we started our company in 2010. And uh, just been doing it ever since, man. Airports, power plants, industrial areas, uh, metro areas. So, so tell the people a little bit about what what would be a scenario where this is needed. Like this is something that they're the government's going to contract out. They're going to give this job to you to bring your falcon in and remove basically other pest birds. What what's a scenario that you could lay up for them that that kind of help them understand this job a little bit more? Yeah. So, um, really like very sensitive environment areas or urban areas where they have a lot of like public where you're in the public view a lot, uh, where a lot of other means of bird control really isn't possible. Um, using like things like really loud noisemakers or, you know, or shooting or even trapping has too much visibility and people get upset about it. Um, it's when those are situations that are really ripe for falconry based okay. abatement. Um, one is like, um, uh downtown Nashville is full of starlings. Of course they have trees down there to, you know, make the city prettier and, and whatnot. Right. Well, they have a absolute ton of starlings that roost in these trees. And of course they're creating a mess and a a health issue. Just you know pooping yeah, everywhere. Yeah, just pooping over yeah. everything, man. Yeah. And it clogs up the uh so what happens is so much poop, it'll clog up, like, the drains downtown, like the street drains, uh-huh. and then those won't drain properly, and then uh-huh. it flood, like, things will flood down there, and right. it's just like a pond of bird poop Yeah, that people are walking through. Pretty much. It's, yeah, it's gross. So, like, <clears throat> but that's a situation where, like, we come in with the hawks, and those are root, those problems are roosting problems, so it's tens of thousands of birds in there at night in those trees and i'll go in with the hawk at night and let the hawk uh hunt these birds in these trees basically yeah and uh and after night after night of that the the birds just you know they don't want to come back because they're being hunted right. and they're asleep so like you said word <laughs> spreads pretty quickly yeah. right yeah i tell people it's like uh if you went to sleep at night and a T-Rex came up to your house and busted out your window and, like, tried to grab you, like, you may try to sleep there one more time, but yeah. if it happened twice, like, you're not going – you're moving. Yep. Nope. Yeah. Getting <laughs> yeah. out of here. Right. Right. Uh, so. You know, I think that's fascinating. That's something that I never thought of, and I don't know that many people do mm-hmm. until I met you, about 
this uh, falconry abatement that's going on because yep. you don't see it. Like you said, you go in at night and essentially, I mean, the city's contracting this out to to fix the problem before it ever becomes a problem usually, right? right? So right. it's not something that people are really aware of, I feel like, but still um, it's still happening and it's yeah. still a problem that's being solved currently. Yeah. Thanks to, you know, people like you. Yep. I've been hard at work at it all this month and i got about a week off and i'll be hard at work at it again that's so that's cool that's really yeah. cool yeah cool. and it's you know it's like the people like it because it's the the green way to do it you know right. you're not you know you could spray chemicals on those trees to keep the birds off of them but you can't go into a metropolitan area and spray chemicals right you know you can't do all these other kind of destructive or you know, questionable activities right. to get rid of birds <laughs> right. when there's like, you know, a gazillion tourists around and stuff right. like that. So, yeah, people yeah. tend to freak out about yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, it, yeah. Not a good call. Exactly. All right. Well, um, I want to, I want to, I want to know just again, really quickly, how do you feel like because of this, this wide variety of jobs that you do that are, all very, very fascinating, but all very physically demanding, I feel like, um, in your hobby with Enduro and all that kind of stuff. Since you've joined CrossFit, how has that made your day-to-day life better in all of the different jobs and, and facets that you work in? Yeah, well, I think uh, outside of the obvious stuff, I mean, I've lost like 20 pounds. Congratulations. Yeah. Huge. Yeah, we yeah. We've had the pleasure of uh, obviously watching that take place yeah. and unfold in front of our eyes. So yeah, and you know, and I didn't consider myself inactive before, or, or really out of shape, but I was. I just didn't really realize how out of shape I was. It, and this is something that, like, I think this is so cool because a lot of times we get people that come in and they're like, they're not inactive, and they're like, "Man, I'm fit." Like, and we'll get recommendations like, "Yeah, this this person's going to kill it." They're like, they're really really fit. And they'll come in and we're like, yeah, they're active. And yeah, they're really good at this one particular thing. That's it. But by our definition of fitness, it's broad, general, and inclusive. And and it can't be that when you specialize in one specific thing. So when you start adding in flexibility and, you know, your cardio and your stamina and your strength and all that kind of stuff, there's usually holes in people's games. And they're like, huh. I'm not really what I, you know, what I thought I was, and I could definitely even continue to be better. And by focusing on something that's a little bit more broad, general, and inclusive, now they're even improving upon the area that they specialized in to begin with. Right. So talk to me about that a little bit because you, you're right. I mean, you were not inactive. You're doing all these things. You've been skydiving for 18 years. You've been doing falconry since you opened your business in 2010, and, and you've been doing enduro riding for you know, that last previous season before now you weren't inactive. So again, how, how do you think that's, that's come to even help your day to day life improve even more? Yeah. I think, um, one of the, the big eye openers for me was my mobility was just how (laughs) immobile I was in a lot of ways. And like when I first came in the foundations class and you had me do a box jump and I was and when I stood in front of that box and I was like trying to figure out how to jump with both feet at the same time. I was like, when was the last time I've done this? Cause like in falconry, like running through the woods with a bird or whatever, I may hop over a Creek or something, but it's always like, you know, I jump with one foot 
right. you leading, know, with, leading one. Yeah. with one foot, right? And it's, uh, I'm like, well, I don't even know how to – I don't think I can even jump on top of this box. It's kind of humbling, you know. It, it's very humbling, man. <laughs> there's, there's not an ounce of CrossFit that's not humbling at yeah. some point in time. And I think it's very interesting because regardless of how good you are and or even regardless of how good you think you are, there's still coordination that can be developed between – and typically what we see is people are very bilaterally coordinated. Like they do things that are um, what we would call like a closed kinetic chain basically is both feet are planted. They're really good at balance and stability and doing stuff with both feet. Oftentimes not so good with unilateral stuff. However, flip that script a little bit. For you, it's now um, we're having to learn how to do stuff with both feet, which you have now and right. you've got it figured out now. but. Right. In the beginning, that was like, why can't I do this? Like, mm-hmm. I'm not inactive. I jump over stuff all day long. But to do it with both feet is just a little different. Yeah, it was weird. Uh, but, you know, I think, like, uh, another big thing that happened was I changed my diet. Mm-hmm. And I'm sleeping so much better. Like, that's been a big change. It's amazing. When you start to focus on the foundation of it all, which we teach, you know, in our foundations program is, you know, oftentimes what people see here is just the exercise alone. And, you know, after going through foundations, like that's not the biggest thing that we really focus on. Um, And for the reasons that you just stated, like the nutrition is the biggest part of the entire process. And you're seeing results from that. Yeah, big time. And I guess when I started out, I didn't really think about I knew I needed to change my nutrition, but think when you get in here and you work as hard as you do in the gym you you want to see results and you know it the nutrition is a part of it and it kind of motivates you to change the way you eat too and it actually wasn't that hard and and i was known for having a terrible diet like that was part of like what my friends knew me as Uh you know they were always joking about how i ate so so yeah i've I've changed that up a lot and just feeling a lot better sleeping a lot better and yeah, a lot more energy and just. And that pays off when you get out into the real world, right? Absolutely. Do the real jobs, the real thing. Yep. Uh, okay, so I got a couple of questions for you. I just want to kind of wrap up with this. Um, we kind of ask these to everybody. But uh, what has been the biggest lesson that you think you've learned here at CrossFit Engage that you feel like either has carried over into your performance here or into your daily life, either or, or maybe even both? What's the biggest lesson that you've learned uh, just learning how to push harder uh, that, you know, that you have more in the tank, just not quitting and pushing harder, especially when I'm racing and riding. Like I'll think about the gym, <laughs> you know, when it starts getting tough, I'll think about the gym and vice versa. When I'm in the gym, I'll think about, you know, Hey, if this is a race, you wouldn't quit, you know? So like, yeah, it's just, just pushing, just pushing myself harder than I normally would. I love it. Yeah, oftentimes, and this is, sounds so cliche, but, you know, the mind will give up a thousand times before the body will. Right. And learning how to manage that conversation and show the mind who's actually in control because your mind will tell you all day long that you got you to stop. Right. Right. But you know that inevitably and at some point in time, the only thing that we can't stop is time. So there is a time where it's going to be done. It's going to finish. Right. Right. There's a start and there's a finish. Mm-hmm. And you know through experience now of I will get to that finish line. It might feel like I'm dying. Right. Right. But I will get to that finish line and you just got to keep pushing. And when you develop that conversation frequently over and over and over again in the workouts, 
we do see that translation into daily life. And like you said, you think about it when you're on the track and you think about it when you're in here and vice versa. And so that is a battle that comes with experience, but is oftentimes won through experience. Right. So that's a huge lesson and a huge takeaway that I think everybody that, that starts here can definitely benefit from. And I think is seeing at some point during their journey or their career here. So, um, what is one thing that you want to achieve in the next six months? And it does not have to be fitness related. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. Oh, first place. Yeah. First place. Yeah, win. I love it. I yeah. love it. Yeah, coming up in the in the fall, right? Yeah, that's right. So, October 1st. October 1st. October 1st. And then I, I didn't ask you this during that, but uh, when we were talking about enduro racing, but what is the – the distance between events like how long before the next race after october 1st yeah i mean there's one there'll be another one at the end of october it's usually about three weeks okay three weeks in between cool so first place six months we're gonna check that off the list (laughs) that's right all right last question and we're gonna wrap up with this one what is one piece of advice that you can leave our listeners with to help them with their fitness journey Oh, man. <laughs> one piece of advice. You had to stick me with that one yeah, to, to finish, huh? We like to finish with the hard stuff. Oh, man. Just, uh, I don't know. Everything I, everything I think of sounds so cliche. It's like you it's, just got to you gotta so show up. You got to come to the gym. You got to just, uh, you know, get in a community if you have to. I mean, that's what I had to do. I and mean, that's why this worked for me. I'd never been in a gym a day in my life before this. Um, and there's no way that I just, I didn't know what I was doing. I was overwhelmed by it. I was a little nervous even coming in here. Um, but just stick with it, get through that part, you know, get over the anxiety of <laughs> coming into a, a place like this and, you know, being the new person and maybe being the most out of shape or whatever, just push through that. So, cause yeah, you know, before you know it, you, you, you're fitting right in and, and working the program and getting in better shape. So love it, dude. Yeah. That's, that's all that needs to be said with that one. Mike drop <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Fincher, ladies and gentlemen.